You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In just a moment, I'll read verses 9 to 11. Start with a bit of an introduction here, though. If a culture has become hostile to Christianity, or if it is hostile to Christianity, usually it's because they hold to some, what to them are common sense beliefs that automatically make Christianity seem implausible, uh, hard to believe, if you will. These are what philosophers call defeater beliefs. And a defeater belief definition is simply this. Something that, if true, means another belief can't be true. So it's a belief that if this is true, and, and if there's some common sense, that to that culture are common sense beliefs that this, this must be true, then it rules something else as, out as being true. So here's, here's a silly example. If I told you, man, I was out in my backyard and I saw a fire-breathing dragon, your response wouldn't be, well, what color was it? Right? Or how big was it? Did you see it breathe fire? No, your response would be, well, you're either joking or you're crazy or you're on medication, legal or otherwise, right? You would have some other alternative because you have a defeater belief that dragons just don't exist. And, and so if I claim to have seen one, you, you know that that's, you say, that's just not true. That's just not true. It, it rules out even the possibility of it. Increasingly in America, a defeater belief is Christianity's position on homosexuality. When people say Christianity cannot be true because it says that homosexuality is wrong. And I, and then, but then the reason, but I know so many loving, kind people that are same-sex attracted or they're in a homosexual relationship. And so if Christianity says that's wrong, well, then it must be Christianity that's wrong. It, they have a presupposition that rules out the possibility of this belief. It defeats even considering it ahead of time. Now, the temptation for the church when faced with a defeater belief has always been to yield on that. So here's a historical example. About 110 years ago, some people started to conclude that our culture could just no longer accept miracles as a, as a real possibility. There's a defeater belief that way, that miracles can't happen. And so if the Bible says that miracles do happen, they're just going to reject Christianity altogether. So some people within the church reasoned, well, we just need to yield on that. We need to get rid of beliefs like the virgin birth of Christ, real miracles of Jesus, perhaps some Old Testament stories that appear to have miracles in them because they say people just can't accept that. And to be relevant, we need to yield on this. Well, the what ended up happening then is you had whole denominations that walked away from Scripture. And in a race to become relevant, they became irrelevant. And many have been dying out since then. The church faces the same challenge today. When faced with this defeater belief, how do we engage people with the gospel Without even, if they may not even seriously consider it because of the church's sexual ethics. And so some Christians have concluded what we need to do is yield on this. They may even have started to wonder, does the Bible really prohibit homosexuality? Could, could it be that we've just been wrong? You know, and they might say, after all, 
Christians used to argue that race-based slavery was okay, and we've concluded that that's wrong. So maybe this is in the same category. Maybe we've been wrong, and the Bible doesn't actually forbid it. It's the reasoning for some. And so they reason themselves into a position where they essentially yield on this topic. What we need instead are three things. We need three things. A clear hold on what the Bible actually says. A game plan for how to address those who maybe hold to this defeater belief without yielding. And a willingness to be seen as foolish. We need a clear hold on what the Bible actually teaches. That's exactly what this passage today is going to do. We need a game plan for how to address this belief. That's not what this passage is doing. Briefly, though, I think that game plan would be some thoughtful questions about where right and wrong comes from. Questions like, do you believe that some things are right and wrong? If so, how do we know what's right and wrong? If God exists, doesn't it make sense that he's the one who ultimately determines right and wrong? Or have you ever considered why God created marriage and sex in the first place? Those are some ways to engage this belief. But that's not specifically what this passage is about. This passage is one that can help us clearly see what the Bible actually says on this. But maybe you're one of the ones that's kind of skeptical on this. Perhaps you're a visitor and this is your first time coming to a Christian church and now you're cringing thinking, why did I come? <laughs> maybe your friend's thinking, why did I invite him today of all days, right? Maybe you're thinking this is something that Christians ought to let go of. Maybe you experience same-sex attraction yourself. Maybe you have a close friend or family member that does. And so even now, with this introduction, you're tempted to check out either mentally or even physically. And I want to encourage you, don't do that. Lean in. You, you owe it to yourself, even if you end up disagreeing with me, you owe it to yourself to see what the Bible actually says on this topic. If you have remaining objections afterwards, and I would love to talk further. I'm not going to be able to address every possible nuance, every possible question that you might have in, you know, 35 minutes. It's just not going to happen. So if you have other questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. We can set up a time to talk later too. Um, but I hope this at least brings some clarity to what the Bible actually says. Let's go ahead and read this passage now. 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We're going to look at this in three points that go along with these three verses. Not exactly one verse per point, but three points here. And the first point is simply this. 
It's a warning. Don't be deceived. Unrepentantly sinful lives do not characterize citizens of God's kingdom. Talking about unrepentantly, not not struggles, not temptations, not I messed up and I want to turn, but unrepentantly, something that characterizes a person, says it does not characterize citizens of God's kingdom. And he warns us about being deceived on this. What does that imply? That implies that there is a danger of being deceived. That there is a, a danger that somebody is arguing differently than this. And, and it was true then and it was true now about one or more things on this list that somebody will say, well, it's not really a big deal. You can be a Christian and still you know, fill in the blank on this. But Paul says No. The author of this book, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul says, no, don't be deceived. The unrighteous, it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you might have a question on this point that pops up. Well, if we're saved by grace through faith, we're saved by trusting in Jesus alone, is this saying that there's these added good things that we need to do also. We need to trust in Jesus and we need to have this performance. We need to do all these good things as well. Is that adding our own human effort to this? And the answer is no. That is not what this is saying. And and so I want to take a brief detour to explain the gospel again in in a way that maybe helps us to understand what this passage is is saying. Because scripture is clear that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what the word teaches is that true saving faith is never truly alone. It brings about a life change for a person from a transformed heart that always shows up in our lives in some way. So I don't want to be misunderstood because this is critical to understanding this passage. I'm going to go through the gospel this way as revelation, response, and and results. Just as a, a, a way to to maybe think through this point, and then we'll circle back to our passage. By revelation, I simply mean this. Starting with what what God has done, what God did, what he has revealed to us. Before we get to our response, it starts with what God has done. Do this through walking through a few verses out of the book of Acts. When Peter, one of the early leaders of the church, was first explaining the gospel to people, this is the message that he, that he used. And this is in Acts chapter 2. We'll end up looking at verses 22 to 24 right here. It says, men of Israel, so, so pausing there, he's speaking to Jewish people. So they had this whole Old Testament background of information of a, of a holy God, a perfect God. But their own sinful pattern of disobedience as people. And so they know that through the Old Testament, God had sent prophets to call the people back to himself. He gave them a sacrificial system that they would would follow in sacrificing animals. Not to take away their sin, but as a reminder of the seriousness of sin. And as a temporary covering, waiting for the great sacrifice to come. Waiting for the Messiah. He's talking to people who already kind of know that. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, he's identifying, this is Jesus, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. He's reminding them that Jesus came, 
These miracles supported who he was. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Not as an accident of history, but as God's predetermined plan, the whole thrust of the Old Testament, waiting and looking ahead to this moment when the Messiah would come and would die at the hands of people, but as a sacrifice from God. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Saying, yes, he was killed. Not as an accident, but as God's predetermined plan. This one you were waiting for, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him up. They knew that their sin was against a holy God. Their rebellion against God was, was real. And he's saying that's why Jesus came. And so then they ask, what do we do? That's, that's our response, we have to ask that. That's exactly what they ask. They say when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, meaning they were convicted. They realized that they had done wrong. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? Okay, this is true. This is what God did. Now what, what do we do? What, what is our response? Is it try harder to clean up our lives? Try to be better people? Be more loving? Be more holy? Is it that? No. Not, not initially. That's a result, not the response. No, the response, what we need to do, Peter says, repent. It's a change of heart and mind about sin and God, ultimately leading, flowing out to a change in actions, but it starts with a change of heart and mind, of turning. It's just a correlation of faith. Faith is believing in God. Repentance is recognizing that the sin is against God, not wanting to continue in it. It says, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'll come back to these words in a moment. But then he goes on to say, so those who had received his word were baptized. So the response is, we repent and we receive. We repent, we, we turn from our sin, we turn from our rejection of God, turning to God. We, we believe, we receive, we say this is true. That's our response. That was their response then, and that's ours now. And then baptism just simply pictures that. But then I want to get to the results. And if you've checked out for a few minutes because you're like, yeah, I trusted in Jesus when I was seven, and like, I kind of know this, come back to me. Come back to me now. Because this next point is what ties us into this passage. When we look at what God gives, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, trusting in Jesus, our substitute. And as we do that, God gives forgiveness. Peter said to them, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He gives us forgiveness. He takes away that sin, gives us Jesus' righteousness, but he also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't merely just take away the wrong we've done. He gives us the Spirit. He gives us a new heart through the Spirit, a work of the Spirit. So that we see in another book, Titus chapter 3, here in verse 5, says, he saved us, God did this, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done. So not because of our own good things. Not because we just turned our life around. Not because we stopped doing bad things. Not because we started doing better things. No. But according to his mercy, 
by the washing and regeneration. Regeneration means to make new, to give a new heart. Regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He forgives us, and he gives us the Holy Spirit, and he gives us a new heart. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as he saves us, he gives us a new heart. And so as we go back to our passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he gives this list. And then he says, But such were some of you, but you were washed. And so on. He's not saying that this is a list of ten things that are unforgivable. Clearly not, because they're forgiven in verse 11. He's not saying this is an exhaustive list of all the things that will keep somebody from heaven. He's not saying this is a list of weapons to abuse those who sin in ways that we don't. He's not even saying that a Christian will never struggle with these things. A Christian might struggle still with alcohol or sexual purity or speech. But is it a struggle in which they have a new heart that is wanting to turn from it, but they still still mess up sometimes? Or is it just a wholehearted acceptance and embrace and not even wanting to turn from it? And he's saying if that's the case, if there's not even a desire to turn from it, if it is just remaining in as a pattern, then it's not characterizing somebody who has been given a new heart. It is incompatible in that way. So then he gives these ten examples. Ten examples of sinful life patterns. We do better with specifics than general, with, with concrete. And it's like that in all areas of life. So uh, our son's playing basketball, so we go to a lot of basketball games right now. We hear a lot of coaches, his team and other teams. Some coaches we've, we've listened to, like you can hear every word from the stands, right? They, they really project. And, and a good coach doesn't just say, play better defense. And the kids are like, okay, how, how do I do that, right? A good coach says, hey, you need to, you need to move your feet more. You know, sit up on the balls of your feet, keep your legs spread wide, keep your hands up. When the, when, when the person drives in, you need to rotate it over on help defense and stop that. I mean, specifics, right? We do better with specifics. So likewise here, Paul gives specifics. Not that this is an exhaustive list, a complete list, but specific things so that the point isn't missed. And to be honest, it might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, Because some of these things that are mentioned are culturally approved. So it might feel kind of awkward to talk about them. We need to take the word for what it says. What pattern do we see in these ten items? There's four that are sexual. Fornicators, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals. I'll talk about each of these in a moment. Three have to do with possessions or finances covetousness, and envy that's directed towards things, seeing things that you want, doing whatever it takes to get them. Thief is one who steals to get what he wants. A swindler is one who cheats others to get what he wants. So they have to do with possessions or finances. One has to do with our words, the reviler. The dictionary definition of that as a biblical term is one who abuses others with his or her words. One has to do with our worship. He mentions idolaters, one who sets their hearts, minds, affections on something other than the true God. And one has to do with our addictions, as he mentions drunkards. 
of the four that are directed at sexuality, two are related to homosexuality and two to heterosexuality. I want to be as specific as the terms are here without being unnecessarily graphic or awkward. But I want to look at them as what they actually say. The two terms that are directed towards heterosexuality are fornication. It's a broad term for sexual sin. Here appears to be used more narrowly of those who are single and engaged in sexual intimacy outside of marriage. So everything from the casual hookup of college students to the longer term cohabiting of two that aren't married and are involved with each other intimately. We all fall under this term. Uh, Adulterers then would address those that are married and are involved with somebody other than their spouse. But it's the next two terms that are especially controversial today. And I probably don't need to convince you of that. These two terms are two terms in the Greek. So the New Testament was written in the Greek language, translated down to English for us, but written in Greek. Um, As you look at different English translations, some of them combine these two terms into one because they're related. Others leave them separate. The New American Standard leaves them separate. If you're looking at, say, a ESV, it might have them together. But there's two terms. The first is the one that is translated as effeminate here. The Greek word behind that is malakos. And it literally meant soft, but it came to be used in this context of the more feminine or passive partner in a same-sex relationship. The word translated homosexual is the Greek word arsenokoitos. And it literally is a combination of two words, the word for man and bed. So you might wonder, like, why are we getting into the weeds of these terms? It's because some of the arguments that have been made are, are that we're just misunderstanding these words. And if we really understood these words, we would see that it's not forbidding what we think of as consensual same-sex relationships. Somebody will say, well, really it's just about exploitation. And it's referring to, you know, an older man with a younger boy or uh, forced prostitution or something like that. In fact, those are the arguments made in a, a prominent book by Matthew Vines where he's making that case. The question is, are we to take these terms that narrowly that it's only forbidding, say, an abusive relationship but it's not forbidding a consensual monogamous relationship, or are we to take it more broadly of any same-sex intimate relationship? And I think the words themselves are very clear that it's more broad. Certainly those abuses did occur in the first century. Uh, forced prostitution or an older man with a younger man. But there were more specific terms that could have been used for that. The term that Paul used here, arsenokoitos, is more broad, and it's taken almost word for word from a very clear Old Testament passage. Okay, so I hope I don't lose you with the language here, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. Greek believers at this time had a Greek translation of the Old Testament that they would often read and quote from and use. And as you look at that, it gives some insight into how they were using these terms. This term, arsenokoitos, seems to come from Leviticus 18.22, where it says, you shall not lie, where there is koitin, 
with a male, arsenos, as one lies with a female. And so as Paul uses this word in the New Testament, he's just taking those two words, arsenokoitos, and he's saying, this is what is forbidden. This is what is forbidden. If Paul only had an exploitive relationship in mind, he could have used a different term. But he used one that tied back to the Mosaic law that was very clear. So it's for this reason that all major English translations translates the word this way. Now, you might just disagree with the Bible. You you might say, "Ah, maybe the Bible is just a, a product of human thought. Or it's a flawed document. But that is a different discussion. If the point that someone tries to make is that the Bible doesn't actually forbid this, that's not true. This other discussion of should we believe the Bible, I'm glad to walk through that with you. But that's what this is saying. This is saying this is what's clearly forbidden. And if we're going to take the Bible as it is, we're not at liberty to just distort words when they go against the cultural current. But somebody might still say, does it really forbid consensual, monogamous, same-sex relationships? It does. It does. The, the words that are used here forbid it. The positive teaching of Scripture on what marriage actually is is also an argument against it. When, when Jesus describes marriage, he quotes from Genesis. He says, but from the beginning, this is Jesus himself, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's quoting from Genesis, which is why this translation puts those in quotes, because it's an Old Testament quote. That's why it puts it in all caps, I mean. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So we have clear teachings of Scripture using words saying, no, this is out of bounds. And then the positive teaching of like, no, this is what marriage is. It's a man and a woman coming together, leaving their their former families in the sense of being united to one another. And that is all that marriage is. But somebody might still ask, well, if this is genetic or biological, if if same-sex attraction is a genetic or biological thing, is it Is it fair for God to make somebody this way and then forbid it? I've talked with believers who, from the time they were young, have felt a temptation in this area. And they don't recall a time where they chose this or something. They just feel like as long as they can remember, they've kind of had a temptation here, a bent. And so they wonder, did God make me like this? Well, I think what we see from the studies that are done, nothing's been definitively proven. Even the American Psychiatric Association in 2013 said that although much research has been done, there's no genetic or biological link conclusively that it's been found. Even if it appears later like there is, it shouldn't surprise us. The the fall, which is what we refer to as the ongoing effects of sin in the world, has affected every part of us. Our our minds, our bodies, our affections. And, And so just like if there's a genetic or biological link that's found that predisposes somebody towards alcoholism, that doesn't mean that we cross out the word drunkard in this passage. It just might mean they have a, a more of a temptation there, more of a struggle that others might not have. So it doesn't change what the passage actually says. But I want to ask a little bit different question, though, at this point. 
Are you someone that somebody else struggling with this could come to for help? Do your jokes, do your comments, your social commentary invite somebody with a hidden temptation to view you as a potential source of help or a source of mocking and harshness and a lack of understanding? In the same way that somebody struggling with any of these items on this list, somebody who has a, has a hidden alcoholism, their spouse goes to work and they day drink and they hide the bottles deep in the garbage can before their spouse comes home so they won't be caught. They come to you for help. Somebody who is buried up to their eyes in debt because of covetousness and they're embarrassed. They have a good job. They feel like they should pay their bills, but they can't because they're so buried by debt. Could they come to you for help? Somebody who loses it with their wife and kids. They're a reviler, which is the term used here. Could they come to you? Somebody who's been sleeping with her boyfriend and they see this term and they're convicted by it and they want to change. Could they come to you for help? Or if they open up to you, would they get shock and separation where you pull back from them? Would they get, you know, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, this passage says, do not be deceived. These things are significant. Or would they get, there's no hope. Either they actually say that or imply it. Well, this passage says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Would they get grace and truth? I've given most of the time here to these two terms because they're the most controversial today. But it's only 20% of the list. Adultery and sex outside of marriage are clearly forbidden. Life patterns dominated by the pursuit of money so that you're controlled by coveting and even stealing if needed to get what you want. An abusive pattern of words known as reviling drunkenness mentioned by name as we saw in chapter 5. This is not talking about the guy who just cracks open a beer when he watches football or the mom who likes a glass of wine with her dinner, but it's the one who is drinking to excess, to intoxication as a pattern. And again, like with all of these, not, man, I messed up. I, I know what's wrong, but I went out with some friends and they, I had a couple too many beers and now I just feel awful. No, it's the one who's not struggling with it, who's embracing it, who sees no problem with it and is continuing on. It indicates there may be a heart that has not truly been converted and changed. And this gives us our last point. Jesus can forgive any pattern of sin. Any pattern of sin is the beautiful, wonderful news in verse 11. We said such were some of you. You may see yourself in one or more of these words of these 10 terms. You may see your past and you have guilt that kind of pops up. You may see your present and you wonder, can God forgive? You, you may see a, not a persistent pattern, but a temptation that you struggle with and turn from and struggle with and turn from and you wonder, is there really hope? This passage says, yes. Wherever you see yourself in these terms, you can be washed. The, that sense of the dirtiness of sin that people feel says it can be washed away. Be sanctified, meaning the grip of sin broken as you're set apart to God. Increasingly so. Your life is not sinless, but over time he helps you to sin 
less because he's changing your heart. You can be justified. Ultimately, the guilt of sin taken away. And Jesus' perfect obedience given to you. Like a dirty coat that you take off and a clean coat you put on. That's this word justified. But what does this change look like for somebody maybe struggles with this one that we've identified as a particular controversial thing? Somebody who experiences same-sex attraction and they want to know, what does real change look like? The Lord doesn't promise that all of our temptations will go away. Christians still get tempted to same-sex attraction. Just like they may still be tempted to any of the items on this list. When you immediately come to Christ, it's not like that is just taken away. But that desire doesn't need to be fueled and acted upon. For some, they may see a change that turns towards a relationship with the opposite sex and and marriage. Um, A few names I'm going to mention are people who've written on this topic. This isn't an endorsement of everything they've ever written on this topic or otherwise, but they're helpful on this. Um, Jackie Hill Perry, a gal named Rebecca McLaughlin, um, and then a gal named Rosario Butterfield are all three women who were either involved in same-sex relationships or have found themselves tempted that way since they were young and, and are, are married to men now and are raising families. The change and transformation, that's where it's led for them. But there's others who've found that this temptation continues in a persistent way in their life and yet they want to live in obedience to the Lord and that ends up being a, a life of singleness. Uh, Sam Albury, again, not to endorse everything he's written, but he would be one that would be in that camp. Sam Albury has written on his own struggles here, but his desire to obey the word in this, for him that's meant, it's meant singleness. My point is that the goal is not heterosexuality. Because as we've seen, you could sin in that as well, right? If you go from a same-sex relationship to then a opposite-sex relationship, but you're sleeping with somebody outside of marriage, that's mentioned in this passage also. The goal is faithful obedience to Jesus. Faithful obedience to Jesus flowing out of a transformed heart. All right, as I wrap up here, if you have added questions, something you didn't understand perhaps that I said, a a nuance you want me to clarify, a what-if type scenario, man, I would love to talk more. I, I will promise to be as least scary as I can be, right? So whether it's talking afterwards or setting up a time to meet, I would love to do that. If you want to read some more on your own, one of the best books on this is one written by Kevin DeYoung, and it's called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And Kevin DeYoung, his book is fairly short. It's divided into two parts. The first part deals with all the key passages in scriptures that address it, and how are we to understand them? And then the second half deals with common questions people might ask. Isn't this unloving? What should I do in this particular situation? Isn't this bigoted for Christians to do this? He addresses all those questions. So if your questions are, what does the Bible teach? First half of the book addresses that. If it's more, you're just kind of struggling with how to work this out in life, um, the second half of the book would address that. Love to loan you my copy or direct you for how to, how to get one yourself. But let's pray.